Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The idea is basically you're paying money so that you don't have to sacrifice this animal or this child. It's a nice donkey you got there. I hate for anything to happen to it. You know, if you give us a little bit of money, we'll let it go. Hey, everybody. I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we seek to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are things today, Dan? It's grand. It's it's all Decalogue all the time today. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a, a screaming good time. It's a beautiful fall day here in Salt Lake City. Yep. The, the it's commandments, commandments, commandments. You can rent the right. whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. <laughs> well, we've been hinting at it. We might as well just launch into our first segment. It's the law. It's the law, dang it. Okay. We are uh, we're talking about the Ten Commandments today, yeah. that specific segment of the law, except uh, we got a bit of a problem here. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that... Which Ten Commandments are we talking about? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, you get, you know, there have been controversies in the last, you know, 10 years about people wanting to put the Ten Commandments up in a courthouse here in the United States or in, you know, in the the state capital of whatever, you know, Arkansas or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then people are like, yeah, no, separation of church and state. But then what nobody's yelling about is like, but which Ten Commandments, though? (laughs) Which is funny, and you don't think that there could be any question about that until you look up the uh, the Wikipedia article on the Ten Commandments, and there's a a table that's like (laughs) showing you all of who thinks which is, you know, who thinks what is which commandment and all sorts of stuff. And let me tell you something, they don't agree. Yeah. Yeah. We've got uh, several different verses, in fact. Uh, and in order to get 10 out of them, you have to kind of combine some and, and uh, divide some a little bit. And are you including the very first uh, or the second verse of, uh, of Exodus 20, if that's your 10 commandments? Uh, <laughs> or is verse three the first? And is 10 about... Uh, coveting all these things plus someone's wife, or is that a separate commandment? And then the biggest problem, though, I want to start off pointing out, though, is that Exodus 20, this is traditionally where we get the Ten Commandments from. Okay, right. It's nowhere referred to as the Ten Commandments. And we get an almost identical list of laws in Deuteronomy 5. Again, nowhere referred to as the Ten Commandments. So where are we getting this Ten Commandments title from? Well, it actually comes from another set of Ten Commandments that uh, is found in Exodus 34. At the end of Exodus 34, 28, and this is after the commandments are listed, you have this statement that uh, Moses wrote all these things down. 
he wrote the tablets, uh, or he wrote upon the tablets the words of the covenant, and then in Hebrew it says, Aseret Hadvarim, which would be the ten words. Mm. Uh, and in the ancient Greek translation of this, the Septuagint, it's Tus Dekalogus, or, or the Decalogue. So it's in later translations of this into other languages that we go from 10 words to um, like 10 principles, uh, 10 uh, concepts, and then ultimately we get the 10 commandments. Commandments, not a great translation of devarim, which just means words or issues, concepts. Uh, if it were meets vote, that would be uh, a little easier as as commandments. Okay, so we've got our 10 words, but I think... That if people are looking at Exodus 34, they're going to be surprised by what yeah. the 10 words are. Yeah, the, it's missing the, what we generally associate with the Ten Commandments, which is our little uh, our little listicle that we are so fond of, of quoting. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, it's got like, you shall not make cast idols. That sounds familiar. That seems yeah. like in there. But then immediately after that is the commandment of that everyone's familiar with. You shall keep the festival of unleavened bread. Yep. Which uh, which doesn't feel like one of the ones that uh, that Roy Moore wanted on the on the courthouse <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, and uh, depending on where you start the uh, the commandments in Exodus thirty four, which by the way are usually referred to by scholars as the ritual decalogue, because mm. it's a lot more focused on ritual and festival than it is on what we might label ethical issues. So right. a lot of people refer to what we find in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5 as the ethical Decalogue, whereas here we have the ritual Decalogue. Uh, but it starts off with, uh, in verse 11, 3411, um, if you're following along at home, uh, mm -hmm. God says, uh, you know, observe what I command you. Uh, I will drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to where you're going. It will become a snare among you. you got to tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their asherim. And then parenthetically, we get this statement for you shall worship no other god because Adonai, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Um, so we're just kind of telling a bit of a story. It's uh, commandments kind of embedded within... God seemingly wagging uh, their finger at the people of Israel. Uh, yeah. You, and you will take wives from among their daughters for your sons, and their daughters who prostitute themselves to their gods will make your sons also prostitute themselves to their gods. So it's kind of warning about all these things. Oh, yeah, uh, don't make cast idols. So suddenly we it, it's almost <laughs> like they're pulling from the traditional Ten Commandments and just kind of sprinkling them uh, in amidst these comments. Yeah, the first the first commandment feel uh, in this particular decalogue feels very xenophobic. It feels yeah. it feel, it's like everybody else is bad, only we are good. Also, no cast idols. Yeah, <laughs> really. And uh, don't forget the festival of unleavened bread. And you yeah, get a you can't forget that one. Of when <laughs> and then we get into probably what what is a uh, secondary version of something that we find in the covenant code. And the term covenant code is something scholars use to refer to Exodus 20, verse 22, so immediately following our traditional Ten Commandments to Exodus 23, verse 33. 
And a lot of scholars consider this to be the oldest layer of legislative material in all the Hebrew Bible. And the language is a little idiosyncratic. It's kind of technical. It's, it's basically an adaptation of some other ancient Southwest Asian law codes, and specifically uh, the laws of Hammurabi from about a thousand years earlier. And a great book that discusses the relationship of the two is a book by David Wright called Inventing God's Law. But in, in the, the Covenant Code, we have this uh, commandment to sacrifice your firstborn child. Mm. Uh, the, the text literally says, you will give them to me, and then immediately says, and you'll do the same thing with the firstborn of your oxen and your sheep. Uh, they'll be with their mother for eight days, and then you will give them to me. And here It's in, an awkward one. It's, it's an, an awkward, awkward one. one. And we've talked about this one before <laughs> yeah. um, on the channel. And or on the channel on the podcast, excuse me. And um, do podcasts channel. have channels? Know. Is it a channel? Okay, I don't know. Who I knows don't. what anything means anymore? Yeah, is, you, you know, know. <laughs> this channel is is it feels like it's a an old school TV reference, and and suddenly, and that feels impossibly antiquated <laughs> at this point. So in in Exodus thirty four, we have uh, a similar statement: "All that first opens the womb is mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep." Firstborn of a donkey, you will redeem with a lamb. So a lamb. So we get into this idea of redemption, and then it says, "All the firstborn of your sons, you shall redeem." And so some scholars think the the ritual decalogue is earlier than the Exodus twenty uh, mm. ethical decalogue, and this is based on this idea that Israel kind of evolved from being more concerned with ritual and cult to being more concerned with ethics. Uh, this is kind of an outdated model that that sees uh, like the prophetic literature as as kind of proto-Protestant faith alone kind of material, uh, and that trajectory is not taken too seriously by many scholars these days. Uh, most would probably say Exodus twenty is earlier. Yeah, it seems hard to me to uh, to make the claim that like redeeming your firstborn son is less ethical than sacrificing your firstborn son. <laughs> Not that I know. Help me understand what redeeming means. I don't understand what redeeming, like redeeming a donkey with a lamb. I'm lost. Is that, yeah. Does that mean we sacrifice the lamb because a donkey is too valuable to sacrifice? Or what? So it's, um, yeah, the word there is uh, pada in Hebrew, which means uh, to buy out. And so the idea is this is owed, but you can exchange rather than giving that you can give money instead mm. so you can buy it out uh, and so the idea is basically you're paying money so that you don't have to uh, sacrifice this animal or this child it's a nice donkey you got there I hate for anything to happen <laughs> to it you know if you give us a little bit of money well, we'll let it go yeah there, there are some parts of this that sound an awful lot like a shakedown and um, <laughs> it seems like just don't require the child to be sacrificed to begin with, and there yeah. would be no need for a <laughs> redemptive uh, stopgap. You would just not have to sacrifice the child. Hey, so look, the Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> and, well, particularly when it comes to these commandments, because according to the narrative right before Exodus uh, 34, the ritual Decalogue, this is the second copy of the law, because Moses... Uh, broke the original copy, and then God is going to uh, reinscribe the exact same thing onto 
this second copy, but it doesn't really match up with <laughs> well, uh, with what we. He have forgot to some stuff that that could happen to anybody. And and there's an interesting commandment in here that that I've always found fascinating. Uh, this is Exodus thirty four twenty three. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before Adonai, the deity, the the God of Israel. And this is found in a couple of other places. It's found in Deuteronomy 16, 16. We have references to it uh, in places like Isaiah 1, uh, I think it's verse 12, uh, and elsewhere where it talks about how three times a year the males are going to go up to, and it's always translated, appear before God. <laughs> but... Uh, the funny thing is that in Isaiah's reference to it, uh, we have the word for appear in the infinitive uh, form, and the consonants of the text are not the right consonants for understanding this word to mean appear, which would be the passive form of the verb to see. The mm. consonants indicate that uh, the verb there is an active verb. Uh, and so do the prepositions, and the, just the syntax of the sentence indicates that, uh, at least according to Isaiah, this commandment was not to appear before God, but to see the face of God. If you look in the Hebrew, uh, it says, et penei uh, Adonai, or ha'adon, or um, Elo, uh, Elohei Israel. And this means literally, to the face of God, and According to the traditional understanding, uh, uh, reading it as a passive, it would be be seen to the face of God. Mm. But uh, many scholars argue that that is a later alteration of what the text originally said, that it was intended to refer to seeing the face of God. And the idea here would be you go to the temple and you see the divine image, and that is gazing upon the face of God which is something that in the Psalms and elsewhere you have authors yearning for. When will I, mean, I see considering, your face? Considering that you've said that uh, they found evidence of cannabis on the altars of the temple, <laughs> maybe they did see the face of God. You know, you never. <laughs> maybe that was a, an interesting way of wording that. Yeah, it's that. And um, also uh, I, I put some Biscoff, uh, cookie butter and some Nutella together in a sandwich, and I saw the face of God. I'm going <laughs> to tell you that'll do it, man. That'll yeah. <laughs> that'll get you there. Yeah, that and, um, it, it, you'll either see the face of God or have to deal with diabetes for a while. <laughs> one or the other, but no lighter required. So, um, <laughs> so that's uh, that's an interesting uh, commandment that is probably reflective of this uh, tradition that we find in Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen. So. There are folks who think that um, some of Exodus 34 is reflecting a Deuteronomistic perspective, or at least is is kind of riffing on a Deuteronomistic perspective. Uh, and I think this is one of the passages where we see that Deuteronomy 16, 16 uh, probably is the original version of that commandment. Mm. Um, but yeah, then we go, and, and so this is a ritual commandment, uh, and then your favorite prohibition <laughs> in the ritual Decalogue is what? Uh, yeah. Look, it's just common sense. You can't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Yeah. Everybody which, knows that. <laughs> which is a, um, there's not a lot of detail there. I assume uh, we're talking it, about a goat in this case, not yes, an actual yes, child. Yes. That would be, correct, you can't correct. do that either. You can't right. boil a human kid in its yeah. mother's milk either. But yeah, we're talking about goats. Yeah, and that's covered elsewhere. Um, but <laughs> <clears throat> and it, there's not a lot of detail here, and we've had a lot of commentators over the over the millennia trying to figure out what on earth is 
the concern here? Why is this a problem? And then how is uh, how far is the scope? Does the scope of this prohibition extend? And so uh, this is the reason that um, anybody who uh, um, offers to take a, a Jewish friend to Burger King might be surprised by what they do and don't order. But you will not find on a lot of kosher uh, menus, you will not find cheese being served with meats as a part of kind of a, um, a hermeneutic extension of this issue right here. This is the That origin. comes from this... The, yeah. This verse? Uh, well, trying to contemplating what is the concern here, and right. if if and then whatever we identify as the concern, does that impact anything else that we're doing? So no no dairy with meat comes from just not boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Uh, it is is it is an extension of that within a that's broader kind of hermeneutic context, but uh, but yeah, that's where. Wow. Uh, that comes from uh, the idea being don't cook meat and uh, cheese or or milk together. Um, okay, and that yeah. that really cuts out a, a lot of of really delicious cuisine. I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> and then we get into uh, verse verses 27 and 28. The Lord said to Moses, "Write these words." Uh, in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. And then we get at the very end. These are the uh, Aseret Hadvarim, or the Ten Words. And so if you're going by what the text says, it seems like the Ten Commandments uh, refer specifically to Exodus 24. We have no such statement in reference to Exodus 20 or in reference to Deuteronomy 5. So this should be what we're referring to, but this has <laughs> but, not— But it's not. Is not, right? We because, know. Uh, because Christianity took over— uh, the Hebrew Bible and decided we're going to rearrange things. We are going to figure out what we want to keep and what we don't want to keep. Uh, and primarily this served their own structuring of, of power and values uh, so that they could do what they wanted to do and uh, not feel bad because there's some commandment against this in the Hebrew Bible. I feel like it was a culinary choice. I feel like they wanted cheese and meat and uh <laughs> well that surprisingly they made, they made some 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 decisions based on that there's an awful lot that has to do with uh with uh, culinary conventions uh yeah. when we get into the book of acts for instance we have the uh the idea of uh, all foods being clean come is a metaphor for uh taking the the gospel to the gentiles in the book of acts but we have at the end of the jerusalem council when uh, in Acts 15, when they're trying to decide if things like circumcision are still going to be necessary for someone who joins Christianity, not from Judaism, but from the Gentile world. Uh, and when they uh, get down to the end, they say, okay, great, that settles it. We're only going to require four things. Th and this is like the four commandments of Christianity that resulted from the Jerusalem Council. They wrote a letter, they're sending it out to all the churches, and those four things are abstain from idolatry, from fornication, from eating blood, and from eating things strangled. Okay. So you have, you have idolatry, idolatry and um, fornication, and then you have two uh, prohibitions on eating certain types of food. Yeah. Uh, so we're carrying on one of some part of this kind of ritual ceremonial ideology. But then you get Paul in Paul's own writings who are like, none of that matters. 
Uh, <laughs> Paul says, you know, an idol, we know that an idol is nothing in this world. And uh, the only reason you should ever like avoid eating meat sacrificed to idols is if it might um, scandalize one of your weaker brothers or mm-hmm. sisters. And so Paul doesn't care about that. And when we look at how Christians interpret the Bible today, who do you think they side with? The <laughs> Jerusalem Council who said Christianity has four commandments, these are they, or Paul who said, meh, let's right. just do the, the first two. They side with Paul. Um, yeah. And so now there aren't really any dietary restrictions for most Christianity, uh, even though if we go by a the Bible says so, that settles it ideology, the Bible explicitly and emphatically says Christians should not eat blood or things that have been strangled. And if you go back to you know the Hebrew Bible, which Christians still revere, you got a whole bunch of other things that they're going to yeah. have to deal with too. Yeah, and those get those get rationalized away uh, in a variety of different ways. Some people yeah. say, well, uh, a law from the Hebrew Bible is only still in effect for Christians if it's repeated in the New Testament. Well. The whole blood thing is something that is in the Hebrew Bible and is emphatically repeated in the New Testament, and that is uh, nobody cares about that anymore. Right. Uh, other people say, well, there were ceremonial and moral laws, and so the ceremonial laws are done away with. The moral laws we keep, and then later they added a, oh, they're also civic laws. Right. Um, and no such divisions are identifiable anywhere in the Hebrew Bible or in the New Testament. That is a second and third century Christian innovation. They said, well, we could say the ones we don't like are this and the ones we do (laughs) like are this. Uh, So these are much later uh, rationalizations of why we should hold on to the things we want to hold on to, which for some reason have an awful lot to do with what other people are doing together in the privacy of their own beds or the back seat of their Chevy Novas or, right. or whatever, and a lot less to do with uh, things like what you're eating uh, or, you know, who you're oppressing or, or who you're bombing. Or, yeah, or what to do when your ox falls in a hole. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, picking and choosing seems to be the, uh, the... Like, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, like, each group, each person finding what rules, what laws make most sense to their ethics. But you got to acknowledge that that's what you're doing. At least. Yeah. Yeah. And it's inevitable. You have to. The Bible yeah. is is not a consistent, unified, univocal text. Uh, and if you want to leverage it as something authoritative, then you are going to have to say, we're listening to this side and not the other side. But yeah, I think people ought to acknowledge that that's what they're doing and have the cards on the table regarding the methodologies that we're using and be consistent about it. And unfortunately, that's not what usually happens. Usually, Because people want the authority of the Bible, which is the highest authority ever, nobody trumps the Bible. Uh, and so they're going to pretend that, well, this is what the Bible says, yeah, um, which is problematic. Indeed. Let's take a quick break, uh, and then we'll come back and talk more about the Decalogue. Absolutely. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. All right. So uh, we, we've, we've talked a bit about picking and choosing. We've talked about the thing that the Bible calls the Ten Commandments. Let's zoom in on the thing that we all call the Ten Commandments, <laughs> which is something totally different and has nothing to do with uh, who's boi- what, what's boiled in whose milk. Yeah, so we we find the the traditional Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and then it's also repeated in Deuteronomy 5. It's mostly the same, but there are some small differences, and this is one of the reasons uh, Deuteronomy 5 is generally ignored in favor of Exodus 20. Oh. Um, So now we have what we understand today as the Ten Commandments, um, depending on what tradition you like and what text you like, because the uh, different traditions in the different texts number them differently. Uh, and even if we go back to the Samaritan Pentateuch, which has a, a verse at the end that represents their tenth commandment, which is, uh, you shall set up these stones which I command you today on Mount Gerizim. So Yeah, I was because... surprised to see that one. I was, I was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, we got a whole... The Samaritans are coming in hot with their, with their own thing. Okay. Yeah, which means they have to uh, kind of move everything down uh, a commandment so that the tenth can be... <laughs> Uh, this uh, this verse that is uh, that is coming in. So their their first commandment covers the first six verses uh, of Exodus twenty, and there are other traditions that um, that agree with that as well. So when we line up what we have in the Septuagint, what we see quoted uh, by uh, early Jewish uh, writers like Philo, uh, what we have in the Targumim, what we have in the uh, the Syriac version. Uh, there's what the we, Talmud. That's another. That Talmud, has another. Yeah, uh, we have uh, traditional uh, Christian version. Uh, the different different denominations within Christianity will divide it up a little differently as well. For instance, within Catholicism, you have verse two, which says, uh, "I am Adonai your God." That's a commandment, or, or part of the first commandment, according to. Uh, Catholicism and uh, the Talmud, but most don't consider that a commandment. They consider that kind of an introduction to. That's just a. That's just a, a an opening statement. Yeah, <laughs> the preamble, if you will. Yeah, if you will. Yes, uh, according to the the Talmud, or, or uh, the second commandment is, "Thou shalt have no other gods before me." So right. I am Adonai, your deity, is a self-contained single commandment, and then we move right on to commandment number two. Uh, which includes, 
uh, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven image. So these two are lumped together, whereas other traditions will uh, divide them. No other gods before me is one commandment, you shall not make any graven image is a second commandment. Uh, and all, all these are efforts to make sure the number we arrive at is 10. So that tradition <laughs> that we have yanked from Exodus 34 and brought over to Exodus 20 is governing um, how we divide up these sense units, which I think is interesting. It's not letting the text operate on its own terms. Right. It is imposing this interpretive lens upon the text. And it's not really changing a ton of things, but it is indicating that the tradition is what is most authoritative rather than the text itself. Yeah, because when I read this, when I first read this, you know, you've got Moses goes up on the mountain and God says all of this stuff to Moses. It There's nothing that indicates like this is one commandment and this is the next commandment. As a matter of fact, you know, the way that I'm used to seeing these presented is as succinct little nuggets. But there's like a whole bunch of like... It's not just, uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol. It's, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Like, it goes on and on. And I had no idea that that was the case. Yeah, and this because we're used to seeing them in kind of a condensed, abbreviated form. In fact, a lot of times you'll see people try to represent how this would have looked like on uh, uh, on the tablets, and they just have this uh, abbreviated Hebrew that isn't even complete sentences. But yeah, the don't make your um, a carved image uh, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, on earth beneath, or that is in the water below. And this has been interpreted interpreted historically as a prohibition on just any representation of animals and humans and buildings and and things like this, which is why you have kind of an aniconic uh, tradition within Judaism. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, but let's save that for the for the second yeah, segment yeah, because yeah. I do want to get into that a little bit. It because that when I first read it, uh, it reads very differently in like the the King James version versus the you know the NSRV and I I. I and RSV, I get those letters mixed up. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and then as, as I was reading it, not only does it not specify the number 10 or or like easily delineate out these different things, it, like if you move on to the next chapter, a whole bunch more commandments appear. So it's just, it just yeah. feels like, it feels almost arbitrary that we've set aside this group and we've chopped it up to 10 when you know thinking looking at how these various traditions have have cut it up and stuff mm-hmm. you could easily have 12 uh and they would and and that would be you know that that would be defensible yeah and you could have uh 12a and then you could have uh <laughs> uh Exodus 34 would be your your 10B or, or whatever, your, yeah. your JV squad of commandments. But um, within Judaism, I, I think the traditional number is 613 total commandments. Oh, but wow. they get reduced down to 10 because they these the 10 here tend to have this kind of generic ethical tone to them. And so it's uh, as we get into the Greco-Roman period and early rabbinic period, you have a desire to 
kind of systematize, uh, distill things down to underlying principles. And so the Ten Commandments uh, kind of encapsulate everything else that we find. And then we go even further, and in the New Testament, and this is something you see within Greco-Roman period Judaism as well, it gets distilled down to the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And if you look at the first few commandments, this is about your relationship with God. If you look at the last five, six, however you number them, those are about your relationship with your neighbor. And so we further distilled it down to just two commandments. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments as a way to say, we've got our 613, and then we can um, whittle that down and down and down to 10, and we can even whittle it down further to two. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a way of consolidating uh, what we find in there, and they function as as kind of marquees, or they function as as proxies for the more detailed um, commandments that we find elsewhere. Excellent. But um, yeah, I, I find it interesting when you look at these these ten commandments, you find both ceremonial and moral uh, commandments. So this later idea that, oh, everything that's moral is still in force, everything that's ceremonial is uh, has gone away, would kind of uh, tear apart the Ten Commandments, but folks don't like to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Don't, don't chop it up like that. Yeah. The Six Commandments. We'll just, we'll just <laughs> whittle it down to the Six Commandments. Seven. Seven okay. chipmunks sitting on a branch eating lots of, what is it, peanuts? On the I don't, I don't, ranch. I you know that old tale from the seas. <laughs> That's a um, listeners will will get that reference. Um, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure uh, somebody one, knows yeah. what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> one thing I find interesting is that Philo uh, is a Greco-Roman period Jewish philosopher and writer, uh, and Philo changes the order. Uh, of the thou shalt nots, uh, once we get to you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not, shall not steal, Philo puts committing adultery the first and mm. says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not kill, and comments that this I, the idea of adultery for him is kind of foundational to the rest of the law, that everything else is kind of encapsulated in this because he's he's kind of uh, analogizing uh, and um, metaphorizing what's going on here. So switches up the order a little bit to serve his own uh, rhetorical interests. Interesting. That's a, yeah. It seems like a sneaky move uh, to just... To just flop things around, but okay. <laughs> well, it, yeah, and and that's not the only time that Philo uh, fiddles with uh, with the text a little bit and says, "Hey, let's move this over here. Let's say this uh, thing okay. over here." That uh, and Philo, even, he's such a fiddler, yeah. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> Tradition, um, <laughs> and then uh, Josephus is uh, Josephus kind of retells a lot of the. Uh, the biblical narrative as well, and does similar things, uh, moving things around. Uh, and in the Targumim, uh, the Aramaic paraphrases of the Bible, uh, they do the same thing in order to try to make it a little more relevant, in order to gloss over inconsistencies, in order to harmonize things. So this is not something that was unheard of at the time. And and for folks like Philo, the the text was not the locus of the authority, and so the text was not inviolable. Mm. It was the ideas, and the text was just an iteration, a materialization of the ideals 
but the authority was located in those concepts, not in their textual manifestation. Well, that just sounds crazy. <laughs> you're you're well, saying that the ideas are the most important thing instead of just sort of whatever the words say? That seems Yeah, nice. uh, imagine that. But today we think of, of the text as, as like our guarantor that this is how the idea was articulated. But anciently, uh, that was the authority was opposite. The idea was most important uh, because these are primarily oral cultures. These are cultures where most of the information was being exchanged orally rather than through text. And so that was just what was considered to be most authoritative. Interesting. So, yeah, and and the you see kind of the transition toward the text within early Christianity in the first and second centuries. That's where you see a lot of this kind of switching, where it's no longer the words of Jesus, but the writings about Jesus, because uh, the graphi uh, were considered subordinate to the the scriptures were considered subordinate to the words of Jesus, because they were living words. The scriptures were dead letters. Right, And then as you get a few generations away from Jesus, and there's not really a plausible case to make that you have heard the words of Jesus directly from Jesus or from one of his followers, suddenly we need to write these things down. Yeah. That, um, this needs to be less living. Less living. Yeah. yeah. And so then, then we get the Gospels. Then we get uh, things being written down, uh, although the agrafa, the unwritten things, still have authority for a couple generations, but eventually they go away as well, and the text becomes the locus of authority within Christianity. Well, I, I think this is all great. I'm loving it. Let's move on to our next segment uh, so that we can actually zoom in and talk some about at least the first few of these uh, commandments Sounds with great. a chapter and verse. All right. So I assume the chapter we're going to be doing is Exodus 20, since, I mean, those are the real Ten Commandments. Since you already rejected the other one. <laughs> you already told us they were wrong. Poor Deuteronomy. Ah, poor Deuteronomy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, here's so one of the reasons why I thought that it would be a good idea to talk about uh, what most people consider the first four commandments in the Ten, in our top ten, okay, uh, is because... It's the part that is kind of non-transferable, non-translatable. Uh, so when somebody, like, this is the part that most people, secular people like me, when someone like Roy Moore wants to put the Ten Commandments on, you know, on the courthouse wall, these are the parts that don't apply to me. Like, I can, I'm down with thou shalt not kill. That's yeah. fine. Some of the other things, you know, I, 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 you'd have to convince me why coveting is so bad, but okay. Yeah. But then there are these, and I, you know, they're, they're very, very specific to the audience uh, for which it, they were written. And they're also very, uh, there's a couple of them that I find, that I think aren't as cut and dry as people want them to be, as Roy Moore would make, would make them out to be. Yeah. So I'm excited to get into these. Yeah. Talk to us about what we got here. So I remember in the movie, oh gosh, I watched it with my kids uh, like a year ago and they were like, this is awful. Um, <laughs> the Zorro with uh, Antonio Banderas. Um, and Even your a kids rejected it? <laughs> oh man. They like the second one better, which I don't get. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's a part where 
he's uh, he's hiding out in the in the church, and she comes in to do confession, and it's Antonio Banderas on the other side of the screen. And she says, uh, uh, I've broken the fourth commandment. And he goes, you kill somebody? And she goes, no, Father, that is not the fourth commandment. Um, and and I, I remember uh, she says she uh, dishonored her, her mother and father or something like that. And I went and looked it up, and I was like, one, two, three. Four. Right? One, two, three. Uh, I was like, this doesn't seem to me to be the fourth commandment. Um, for some uh, traditions, it's the fifth. For others, uh, it's the fourth. Okay, but, so um, we'll we'll throw it in um, just because sure. I think I think it is interesting what's what's going on in uh, this uh, particular commandment. Well, and 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 if Banderas says it's so, then it must be so. So, <laughs> if, if, yeah, who if am I? No to, less to an authority than the Zorro movie yeah. is claiming this. And, we'll um, honor and the, the he's puss in boots too. So yeah. Um, although I don't know that there's a reference to the Ten Commandments in in Shrek, uh, and puss in boots. Um, so in order to to get the fourth commandment to be honor thy uh, father and thy mother, the first commandment has to be two things: you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images for yourselves. And the the have no other gods before me is an interesting one. Uh, a lot of folks will point out right off the bat. This seems to suggest that there are other gods out there. Yeah. Um, but this is making kind of ambiguous use of this word for God, Elohim, because anciently you use the word to refer to the deity itself, wherever it may be located and whatever form it may take. But you also use the word to refer to any uh, material indices or material manifestations of that deity. So an idol, a divine image, could be referred to as a god. Uh, and right. so you see this uh, kind of pejoratively. You see mockingly um, idols referred to as gods. Ooh, he's got his gods with him. Um, and and that's kind of rejecting the fact that they're gods. But then within the biblical text, there uh, the narrative also refers to idols uh, and uh, divine images, teraphim and things like that, as gods in kind of an unironic, totally straightforward way. So the Bible itself seems to refer to divine images as gods. And so we could interpret this to mean uh, you will not have any gods in the sense of divine images. And then the before me, um, actually in Hebrew is al-panai, which means over or against my face. And so one way to interpret this is to mean in our Holy of Holies, where you have my divine image set up, you won't have any other gods on the other side of the room. You won't have any other divine images in front of me, across from me, by me. That's one way I just to interpret don't, I just don't like looking at them. It's fine for you to have them. <laughs> I just don't want to see them. Yeah, get them away from me, kid. They bother me. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh, this, if we understand this to be primarily a commandment about worship, and I mean, it obviously is, then this has to do with the cultic centers and the sacred precincts. And in the sacred precincts, you had benches and rooms where you set up divine images. And this is true of the Israelites as well. We have uncovered Judahite temples that contain bench rooms and places where we have found different kinds of uh, divine images. Uh, we have found uh, at Arad, the uh, Holy of Holies, that had a standing stone set up in the Holy of Holies and had two uh, incense altars 
in front of it. And so the earlier we go in time, the more and more sense to me it makes to understand this to mean don't put any other divine images in my holy of holies. So it's but kind would of that, a, uh, Sorry, would that mean ahead. that it would be okay to have other divine images, Asherah poles, for example, outside of the holy of holies? So this is this is an interesting question. If it depends on what you think the scope of the commandment is, because we could say you know not in this room, but you could also understand that to mean um, you're not supposed to do this at all. But it might not. We don't get any uh, vilification of the Asherah poles until the seventh century BCE with Josiah and Josiah's campaign of cult centralization, where it's not just Baal who's being demonized. And Baal is being demonized because Baal is the direct competitor to Adonai as the Northwest Semitic storm deity with home court advantage. Uh, And so prior to Josiah, it seems like they were worshiping um, Asherah as the consort, the partner of Adonai, of the God of Israel. So it depends on when you date this. This does not go back to Moses. This is right. 8th, 7th, maybe 9th century BCE. And so if this predates Josiah, they might have been like, eh, not worried about Asherah. Um, so well, it may, I mean, it, so it's a plausible interpretation of this commandment that it just means, yeah, go ahead and worship other gods, but like not in my room. Yeah. That is a that is a plausible interpretation. However, when we get to the next commandment, uh, or actually uh, commandment one B, uh, you <laughs> shall not make any graven images of. Oh them. right, that seems like uh, that is kind of uh, cutting that off. It does. Never mind. That, you're right. That's a, <laughs> that seems like a very big uh, a very big no uh, on that one. Oh, although it says make for yourself in this one, it says thou shall you shall not make at least in. Man, and man, the wording is so different uh, between, like, the KJV and the NS- NRSV. It, it, it yeah. is. Yeah, and and um, let's see. We got lota selacha pesel. So do not make for yourself or to yourself uh, pesel, which is uh, an idol, a graven image, uh, or any uh, temuna, which would be a, a form, image, likeness, uh, which is in the heavens, above and which is in the earth beneath uh, and which is in the seas beneath the earth or yeah the waters beneath the earth and so the question then becomes is commandment 1b uh, does that originate at the same time as commandment 1a or does it come afterwards is it expanding the scope of commandment 1a or was uh, or is it clarifying the way it was always understood was it always there uh, we don't have enough data to um, to answer that question. I want to stop on the the graven image thing because I yeah. don't know I uh, I don't know what it means. I don't okay. know what a graven image is really. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the NRSV has "you shall not make for yourself an idol." It doesn't use the term graven image. But the other thing is that it seems like it says no pictures. Like if that's what it feels like, it says to me is uh, yeah. is is you you're not allowed to make pictures, and we know that that's you know I know you, you know the uh, the the Muslims have have prohibitions against or used to have prohibitions against Im- any imagery. Now it's sort of been interpreted to mean at least you can't make images of Allah, but. You know, if you go into the Alhambra or something in Spain, you won't see 
you'll see very pretty writing because they wanted mm-hmm. to be decorative, but no portraiture of any kind, no no paintings of any kind. So c- could this be a, a prohibition against, you know, paintings against imagery? Well, it seems it seems unlikely in light of the fact that we have a commandment as they're building the tabernacle and later the temple to create images of cherubim. Oh. To adorn the the walls uh, of the temple which ostensibly are things that occupy the heavens. Right. So, it's uh this is a point of contention. Uh, it's all about what the scope of this commandment is, because if it means in that holy of holies, then you know the cherubim would not be a violation of that. Well, shoot, I don't remember if the cherubim are inside the holy of holies. Uh, <laughs> at least it's very in, confusing. In, yeah. Um, so graven uh, means engraved. Right. So something that is carved, chiseled, cast. So it has to do with a divine image that has been produced. Uh, that's the whole idea there. Whether uh, it is something that is cast or carved or um, however uh, you are going to do it, tatted, um, you know, you just, uh, you don't want any such uh, images being produced. And whether or not this means don't make anything that is conventionally used in worship, like, you know, an image from the, don't make a deity, whether it's in the skies, whether it's in the seas beneath the earth, whether it's on the earth, don't make that thing, or whether it's don't make anything at all, um, is not clear from the text itself and is not clarified by the context given uh, that we're making images of other things later on. And then within Greco-Roman period Judaism and late antique Judaism, you have a tradition of including a lot of imagery in uh, mosaics, uh, the altar that was found in Magdala, uh, in the synagogue there uh, depicts like the temple and depicts other things like that. It's not it's not depicting a bunch of deities or anything like that, at least not in this part of town. The Dura Europas uh, synagogue is doing those kinds of things. And so it's the history of interpretation is mixed, but I don't mm. think we can um, delineate a clear scope based just on the text alone. All right. That's uh, that's very confusing, but well, I guess we'll just keep going. <laughs> and then um, in verse 5 says, you will not bow down to them or serve them. Uh, two different uh, verbal roots that are conventionally translated worship. Uh, for I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous God. And here we have the accurate use of the word jealous. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to be a pre- uh, prescriptivist. But <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, are you defining things, Dan? No, no, that's... Um, uh, so the word jealous, a lot of people um, use jealous to mean envy, which is fine. I do it all the time. But I used to get harassed a lot uh, by people who'd be like, doesn't mean envy. Jealous means you you have something and you don't want anybody else to have it either or to take it from you or something like that. But that's exactly what this means. God has your worship and does not want you worshiping anyone else. So right. God is a is a jealous God, therefore don't worship uh, other deities. Which is interesting because it does seem like the uh, the implication here is that there are other gods who are less jealous. But yeah. I'm particularly jealous. You got you, got, and since I'm your guy, you got to go with 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 my rules here. And uh, and I think there are a lot of scholars who would argue this this idea of a jealous deity kind of begins with Josiah, where mm. Josiah is trying to centralize worship and consolidate 
power and say, you can now only worship in the one temple, you can only worship the one God, you can only use the one priesthood, all of which happen to be under my control. Right. Um, so it it makes an awful lot of sense for the idea of the jealous God to arise within a Deuteronomistic context. Authoritarianism is, is at very least simple. It's That's a hell nice. of a drug, um, <laughs> to quote the great poet. Um, yes. Yeah. And then... Uh, Let's see how we're uh, we're numbering them, uh, and then we have uh, you shall not take the name of Adonai your God in vain, which is Ooh. something that gets quoted an awful lot. That a lot of people think means you can't use naughty words. You know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say let's take a break, and we'll come back and talk about what it actually means to take the name of the Lord in vain. Good tease. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Okay. All right. So we're back. Uh, KJV says, take the, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Mm -hmm. That is not what the NRSV says. Mm. Uh, the NRSV says, uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, mm. which makes a lot more sense to me. Uh, okay. as, a, as a as a translation. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, talk to me about what scholars believe this is actually saying. Because, yeah, you mentioned earlier that, like, it's probably not about don't say swears. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's definitely not about that. Um, but the uh, the Hebrew here is interesting. Lo et shem Adonai lohecha lashav. And um, tisa is... Uh, the verbal root there is nasa, which means to lift, to bear, or to carry. And so it's literally don't lift up, don't bear, don't carry uh, the name of Adonai, your deity, 
And then uh, lashav means falsely, um, empty, vain. So mm. with uh, with to no effect, uh, in a way that's worthless, something like that. And so I, a lot of scholars have have commented that this seems to be coming in a in a time when the again going back to the ritual context. In what ritual context could the name of God be lifted up or born or carried? And uh, a lot of scholars would point to the use of the name in oaths, where um, frequently there was some kind of gesture, some kind of uh, lifting up that took place um, alongside the pronunciation of the divine name. And so this maybe, I would argue, if we place this very early in time, the idea here is probably don't use God's name in an oath that you don't intend to keep or um, don't do it flippantly. And there are a couple of reasons, that uh, additional reasons that this makes sense. One is based on something that I argued in my book from last year, uh, the divine name carried power and efficacy. And to speak it was to materialize it, and that is to evoke the divine presence. And so to do so flippantly, uh, repeatedly, over and over again, is to kind of waste what is supposed to be holy, what is supposed to be special. Right. Uh, and in, in that sense, you're not supposed to be engaging in these oaths flippantly or with no intention of keeping them. So what we're talking about is the difference. We're not talking about someone saying, oh my God, look at that. But we are talking about someone saying, I swear to God, I will have this, you know, <laughs> returned to you by Sunday and then not actually do it. Like if you if you actually swear an oath using the Lord's name, you're that's supposed to be you're meaningful. On the hook. Yeah, yeah, you're on the hook for that. So um, and and you know depending on on how we interpret the scope that could be extended to uh, things like the the word God here the it's specifically the divine name it's specifically the tetragrammaton that is oh, being okay. referenced um, and so no you cannot say that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah uh, <laughs> according to uh, this passage now a um, couple of things happen historically. It became inappropriate to use the divine name ever, and I think this is particularly uh, happening in um, late Second Temple period, so second, first century BCE. It becomes kind of a taboo, and particularly after the temple is destroyed, because it, for a time, you could only it was only appropriate to pronounce the name in the temple. And then it was only one person who was allowed to do it, and then they were only allowed to do it on one day of the year. So this ideology developed that it's so sacred, it can't occur outside of our sacred space. Mm. And then when that sacred space no longer exists, it's not appropriate anywhere. And so now we're not supposed to use the name at all. And even when it's being written, it's being there is care being taken with the, the divine name. Sometimes it's written in older letters. Uh, there are, uh, in later Judaism, you get uh, this idea that you can't just throw away a text that has the divine name on it. It has to be disposed of according to a certain process. And that's where we get the development of uh, what's referred to as uh, a um, geniza, uh, which is, is basically a storage room for texts that have the divine name on them. Uh, and 
I know that you've mentioned that uh, that name in uh, in English uh, translations is frequently switched to the word Lord or to the word to a different word. Yeah. How often would we see that name in the text if that switch wasn't made? And is there a is there a, a moment in like you know in in the uh, the the Hebrew Bible? where it stops being used as much. It's not uh, so much avoided in text. It's, oh, okay. Um, it's avoided in speaking. Now, there are examples of this in uh, Qumran literature and elsewhere. You do see other words kind of more commonly used in place of where the divine name should be. Uh, and then in contemporary Judaism, uh, and this is a practice that goes back quite some ways, you would use abbreviations for the divine name in order to avoid writing the divine name because, uh, and, and particularly like writing uh, uh, something on a computer or on the internet, uh, you don't want it to be destroyed. And so um, some people will write G-D or mm-hmm. something like that as a way to avoid writing out the divine name. So depending on the, uh, the strictness of the tradition, it might be something that you know, people pronounce with no problems. It might be something you don't pronounce, but that you would write. It might be something that you would not even write. Uh, and and this goes back pretty far. But once you get to the point where there's no appropriate place to pronounce the divine name, then this commandment takes on a different meaning. Oh, yeah. Um, because you're, you're not supposed to bear it uh, or lift it up anywhere. Uh, does and- verse 7 of chapter 20, does in the Hebrew, does it actually have the name? Yes. The Tetragrammaton? Yes. So it doesn't say the wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. It's the name of Tetragrammaton your God. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That actually changes things a lot to me. Well, yeah. In in English translation, we've kind of uh, deferred to this tradition of using Lord as a substitution. So in the the King James Version, you'll see Lord in small caps— and when you right. see small caps, that's usually an indication this is a substitution for some some version of the divine name. That's, um, that that means that means something very different to me. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because I think of the phrase "the Lord your God" as its own phrase, but yeah, if it's actually naming the name in that, that's a, that yeah, that feels very different. That's interesting. Yeah, and and the fra- that phrase "the Lord your God" is almost always. Adonai, or it's almost always the Tetragrammaton followed okay. by Eloheicha uh, or Elohechem or something like that. Interesting. All right. Yeah. We got to get through the rest of the. So, so uh, after uh, verse seven, we got verse eight, which gets us to uh, remembering the Sabbath day and keeping right. it holy. To keep it holy, to, um, and we have an infinitive uh, of this verbal root, kadash, which means to consecrate, which probably uh, derives from this notion that uh, people and instruments and vessels that were being used within sacred spaces needed to be clean, needed to be pure, needed to be uh, from certain materials so that they could be used within these sacred spaces without bringing in any kind of contamination or anything like that. And so the idea is uh, it needs to be clean, pure, consecrated for a specific use. Uh, Some people will say set apart for that specific use. And so the idea here is that the Sabbath day needs to be set apart. And there are some folks who suggest that this is uh, this became important uh, during the exile when they did not have the temple because they did not have the sacred space 
where they could worship. And so the Sabbath perhaps is a way of demarcating sacred time. So we worship using sacred time rather than the sacred space that is no longer available to us. Right. Uh, but that is, I, I think the Sabbath day one is probably one of the later passages from the, the Ten Commandments. That's really, that's really interesting. It, and not only does it say that you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath day, but your son, your daughter, your, your slaves, your livestock, nothing is allowed. Nobody's allowed to work on yeah. that day. That's one that, uh, that I think modern believers have kind of, maybe, uh, especially <laughs> yeah. the Christians have kind of like glide over that a little bit. Yeah. The gear, uh, which is, which could be translated as, uh, the migrant, the refugee, mm. uh, the immigrant, those, those are all concepts that align with this, this idea of the, the gear, the resident foreigner, also not supposed to work. So, right. um, you know, there are yeah a lot of ways that this prescribes uh, a, a standard that is just rejected by the overwhelming majority of Christians today. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, and then we finally get to the Zorro uh, <laughs> commandment, yeah. which yeah. that's how it's going to be referred to in my mind forever. <laughs> uh, and that is honor your father and your mother. Uh, that, yeah. Okay. That, you, that your days may be stretched out or may be long uh, upon the land which Adonai, your God, is giving to you. Yeah. Uh, and there is an argument to make here that um, the honoring has to do primarily with uh, land inheritance. Ah. Your days in the land being long doesn't necessarily mean you have uh, a lot of time hanging out on your property, it means that your property is uh, continues down your line. And so your family, uh, their possession of the land uh, is uh, lengthened, is long, because property uh, rights in Israel have always been one of the central uh, issues, uh, one right. of the um, sites of contention. and uh, And so I think... This probably originally is a promise about the fact that your uh, your property will stay in the family line for a long time, provided you maintain those uh, relationships and uh, don't you know go off and uh, marry uh, too many foreign wives or uh, or anything like that. It's, and it's, uh, it's a bit of an ironic commandment to give to a group of people who have been wandering propertyless in the desert for yeah. however long they have been. Well, okay. and that's and that's if you place the uh, composition of the commandments in uh, such a time period, and there are, the data don't really support the notion that right. any such time period existed. Uh, but it is kind of serving that narrative. Uh, but it is it is something that there are a number of places where you, when you look through the the texts that are talking about the wandering period, it frequently reflects the perspective of a sedentary group, not a group that is uh, that is wandering. Right. Um, but yeah, so the idea is uh, be nice to your dad uh, so he doesn't kick you out or kill you. Uh, and that way you will inherit the land, and that way you will have land to to pass on. Uh, and my uh, my dissertation supervisor, Francesca Stavrakopoulou, wrote a wonderful book called The Land of Our Fathers, which is about the property uh, inheritance and how establishing uh, possession of land was so central to the development of 
the notion of Israel. Um, and so I think in light of how important that was, uh, I think this commandment is, is best interpreted as having to do with uh, possession of the land and a long stay in it. Well, you ain't no kind of man if you don't have land. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this was fascinating. I love it. Maybe we'll get to the rest of the uh, of the Decalogue at a later date. But for now, yeah. I think that's a great place to cut it off. If you uh, would like to write into us about anything, please feel free to do so. Contact at dataoverdogmapod.com is the way to do that. If you'd like an ad-free version of all of our shows and uh, also some uh, extra content and stuff, you can become a patron of the show over at patreon.com slash data over dogma. Other than that, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody. Data Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media, LLC, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.